Well, even, even our choir members, underneath their robes, many of them are wearing red. As so many of you are this morning, and I can't remember another Sunday when we were this excited about Valentine's Day. So good that we... So good that we all have so much red on hand. That's wonderful. I know what we're thinking about this morning, and I'm going to ask you to suspend some of that just for a little bit because I want us to think for a few moments about the faith that we're passing on to our children. And I do mean our children. This, the children of this church, those who have been here, those who are here, those who will be here, are not my children, and they're not your children as much as they are our children. Every person who I have ever known, who has ever cared about a child, who's ever loved a child, has wanted at some level for that child to be raised well. That seems simple enough. And most of us who have embraced that responsibility at some time or another have realized at some point that this is not something that we can do as well as we'd like alone. And no one should really have to. This is something we know and this is something we acknowledge every time we have a family dedication in church. When parents bring their children here in these services, they are acknowledging that this is not just their child, but this is God's child and that they are stewards of this child's life. But they don't acknowledge that alone. But we also acknowledge that not just they, but we are stewards of that child's life as well. They have a responsibility to these children and we have a responsibility to these children. So then, we affirm as a community of faith that we will raise this child with their parents so that they will know love and support and so most of all, that they will know that they are God's child first and last. And we do this, or at least we say this, because we know that their best shot and our best shot of being the people that God has created and called us to be is to live and to grow in a certain kind of community. A meaningful, Christ-centered community that is heaven-bent on cultivating meaningful, Christ-centered lives. And we, we are meant to be that community. These children, the children that God has graciously brought into our midst and into our care, are our children. You may be a parent or a grandparent or you may not be, but we all have children. These children are our children. So what do we want for our children? Who do we want our children to become? And, and how do we plan to accomplish that? In a sense, that's exactly what this biblical passage from Deuteronomy is all about. So let's read these words or some of them again together. If you've got your Bibles open, you can look at verses 1 and 2 of Deuteronomy chapter 6 with me. Where it is written, These are the commands... The decrees and the laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess. So that you and your children 
and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all of God's decrees and commands that I am giving you so that you may enjoy a long life. Now what commands from Moses are we talking about here? What commands are Moses talking about here? This passage comes right on the heels of the Ten Commandments, the essence of the law that God gave Moses to give to the children of Israel. And by the way, when I say children of Israel, I am using that phrase purposefully. There are many ways in Scripture to talk about people of God, but I think it's helpful here in this moment that we're all together to talk about them as children of God, specifically as children, the children of Israel or the children of God. Because, because, how appropriate is that? Because <laughs> as we attempt to understand why the commands of God were given, it's helpful for us to think of the great lawgiver as a great parent God who is trying to answer the question that we asked earlier. Who do I want my children to become? The, the Ten Commandments can easily seem stale, right? But what lies behind them are the hopes and the dreams of a loving parent who is trying to answer the question, who do I want my children to become? God's laws may seem rigid sometimes, but rigidity has never been the reason for the law. Now, the reason for God's laws has always been love. Children point us toward this better than anyone else, I think. Because our children, even, even if you don't have children in the home, our children don't always like the way that we parent them, right? Mine don't. Children like it when we watch, let them watch their favorite movies or TV shows, when we give them a certain kind of attention that they long for, or when we make their favorite meals, or when we let them stay up late to watch a particularly big game. Children like it when we do what they want, or at least they do in theory. One of you shared a post from a parent on social media this past week that I just thought was wonderful. And if the reaction at the early service was telling, some of you won't get this at all because you're too removed from young children. And others of you, when you think about this, will resonate deep in your bones. Imagine you've been allowed to sleep in as long as you want and you have no chores or responsibilities all day long. There's fresh fallen snow on the ground. Your mom makes cinnamon rolls and serves you breakfast. But you're almost three years old, so you are blind with rage. You get that. That may only make sense to some people, but I'd venture to say it does make some sense. But mostly, I think this kind of parenting, the kind of parenting our children generally are happy about, is well received. Yes, they say to fun vacations. Yes, to special gifts and, uh, and, and special shows and family story times and tasty meals and, and, and favorite moments as a family. Yes to all this. Sometimes our children really like the way we parent. And sometimes they don't. When there's been far too much screen time and parents demand that devices be turned off, 
They don't. When fruits and vegetables must be eaten before dessert can even be considered, they don't. When you know how important it will be for them to be well rested tomorrow, now this won't apply to tonight, but when you know how well it will be for them to be well rested tomorrow and all the signs say that it is time for bed, but they're not ready for it, they don't, they don't like it. When it's Thursday and you find out that they haven't taken a bath since Sunday, <laughs> hypothetically, of course, and you insist that they must bathe again this week whether they think they need it or not, sometimes they get it, sometimes they don't. Children don't always like it when you say to them things like, Stop pulling your sister's hair. Or just get away from each other. Stop looking at each other or touching each other. Stop hitting one another. Don't run with scissors. Don't play in the middle of the street. Please stop sticking pencils and paper clips and fingers into the light sockets. Children don't always like boundaries. Most of us don't. Even good boundaries. And I can promise you, children, that parents rarely enjoy having to enforce boundaries. But they do, we do, ultimately because we're trying to participate in the answer to that ultimate question that I mentioned earlier. Who do we want our children to become? Who do we want these children to become? Now, to be responsible in any way for raising a child in any way is to participate in the answer to this question in some way. Who do we want our children to become and what must we do to get them there together? God gives us part of the answer here starting in verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your strength. These commands that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk to them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road. When you lie down and when you get up, tie them as symbols on your hands. Bind them on your foreheads. Write them on your door frames of your houses and your gates. Now, the first part of this passage is a very important prayer known as the Shema, which Jews, Jewish people in Jesus' day and even still today would pray twice daily as a way of confirming and affirming the central claims of their faith. And it begins with the important assertion that Yahweh is our God and our only God, and then goes on to say that we should Love Yahweh with all our heart, our soul, and our strength. Now to understand what this means, really means, we've got to pause. Do a little word study here because there are three or four words here that probably prompt ideas in our mind when we interpret these verses that would have been foreign to the original readers. So we need to look at these words very quickly to understand what's being asked of us here. First, the words love and heart. When we hear the words love and heart, in our day we think of emotion, we think of sentimentality, we think of romance, we think of dating, we might think of Valentine's Day. 
Love is something we feel. Love is something we fall into. But that's not what they would have heard. No, love for them instead was about loyalty and obedience that transcended feeling. Love was about loyalty and obedience that transcended feeling. And loving with all of your heart wasn't about loving with all of your emotions. It was about making a conscious decision. In other words, even when you don't feel God, you follow God. Second, the word soul. When we hear the word soul, we often think of an inner life, but that's not what they would have thought of. Okay? The Hebrew conception of the soul involved the whole self. One of my favorite college professors used to say, you have a spirit, you have a body, but you are a soul. So to love God with all of your soul is not to love God with, your, with simply your inward or private self. It's a love for God that calls you to give everything, everything over to God. Third, the word strength. And this one gets a little bit sticky. It may make us shift in our chairs as things like this often do. What does it mean to love God with all of your strength? Does it have to do with going to the gym? Talmudic sages and later rabbinic authorities have interpreted the phrase all your strength here as a reference to wealth. Which may actually explain why when the rich young ruler of Mark's gospel came to Jesus and asked him how to attain eternal abundant life, Jesus says the only thing left for him to do is to submit his wealth to God. He'd given over everything else, just not his wealth. Now what does all this have to do with the raising of our children? Everything. The Shema and the words that followed it explain to us what we must do, what we must do, if we want our children, and listen to this, our children's children, and our children's children's children to become the people God wants them to be. Not just our children, but generations of our descendants. If we want our children, and our children's children, and our children's children's children to become the people God wants them to be, people who love the Lord their God with all their heart and soul and strength, the first thing we must do is choose to ourselves love God with our heart, soul, and strength. The first thing we must do if we want our children to love God with their whole lives is to love God ourselves with our whole lives, to choose to give ourselves completely over to the will and the ways of God. Does that make sense? A lot of this stuff is, is just really simple stuff that we know, but a lot of the things that we know we often don't apply. So here we go. We must choose to follow God's commands. We. We must choose to immerse ourselves in the ways of God. We must choose to make God our first and all-encompassing commitment. We must choose to love the Lord our God with all of our heart and soul and strength. We must choose 
to impress Scripture on our hearts and on our door frames, whatever that looks like for you, we must choose for God's words and God's ways to saturate our thoughts and our speech and our decisions, or in other words, we must live the faith we want to leave. We must live the faith we want to leave. Who do you want your children to become? Do you want your son or daughter to grow up to be a spiritual leader in their family, in their church, in their community, in their world? Do you want your great-grandchildren? Do you want your great-grandchildren to have parents that they can look up to as models of what it means to follow Christ? Do you want to see God's kingdom come and God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven? And would you like to know that it's happening because your children and our children and our children's children are fiercely loving and devoted followers of Jesus? Would you like that? Then we must live the faith that we want to leave. We must live the faith that we want to leave. So what's that look like? Again, it's a lot more simple than we think. Or it's just as simple as we know. If you want your children to be people of prayer, be people of prayer. Pray for them and pray with them. If you want your children to be people whose lives are shaped by Scripture, then guess what? Be people whose lives are shaped by Scripture. Read it. Study it. Wrestle with it. Meditate on it. Live it. If you want our children to be the kind of people who are committed to a church, then guess what? Be the kind of person who is committed to a church and be committed to that church in the way that you want them and their children to be committed. If we want our children to believe that Jesus and the Christ community are more than just one option on the menu of their lives, but instead that Jesus is life, then we must live that way. We must live the faith that we want to leave. You must live the faith that you want to leave. You must let it saturate your lives. You must choose for it to saturate your lives. You know, one study recently showed that an average child, and this is probably adults too, are on some kind of screen about 45 and a half hours every week. Exposed to three or 4,000 advertisements per week. That number's increasing. What does that have to do with this? Well, what it means is that our children are spending far more hours in front of advertising and media than they are listening to their school teachers each week. And far, far more than they are engaged in any kind of spiritual formation at church. So what does that mean? What am I insinuating? What am I trying to say? I'm saying that as people of faith, we should be aware of how our children are being formed and what it is that is forming them most. Am I saying we should pull our children out of the world? Absolutely not. But we ought to be aware of how our children are being formed and what is forming them the most. Because if you want the gospel to shape their lives, 
It's got to shape your life. And that only begins to happen in healthy ways when love for Jesus and a relationship with Jesus is also saturating and shaping the lives of the models and mentors, parents and peers in our children's community. That's one of the most significant ways God's Word and God's ways begin to become a vital part of who our children will go up to be. We are formed in and by those who are forming us. Now, we need to pray about that. Now, having named that, we don't just need to pray about it. We need to think about what God might be calling each of us to do about it. But having said that, before I close, I would like to name something else. I would like to name something that is surely stirring in the hearts and minds of some parents and grandparents who are sitting here in this space this morning. And it's this. Some of you have done this. Some of you have done this. You've lived Scripture. You've put the Word of God on your doorpost and door frames in your own way. You've impressed the Word upon your heart daily. You've prayed with your children and for your children. You've let Jesus and Scripture shape your life and everything you've done. And you've done everything you can do to put your children and grandchildren in spaces where Jesus and Scripture can shape their lives. You've done your very best in these ways and more to model the kind of life that you want your children to embody and embrace. And so far, if you're honest, by your estimation, you would say that they haven't. And you're not sure they ever will. You still have hope. And I know this of some of you personally, but you also have a broken heart because you want more for them. And if that's you, I want to offer this little thought before we approach the table, as unhelpful or helpful as it may be. We are human. And our children are human. We can do our best to model and guide, but we cannot control, and, and to a great degree, control and the effort to do it is somewhat what gets us in trouble. We, we can't control, we just can't, but we can grow ourselves, and we can learn, and we can model. We can hope, and we can trust, and we can believe. The Gospel tells us that God is love and is full of grace that is overflowing. So we can trust that God is going to be gracious with us and with all of our children because whether they or we know it or not, they and we are God's children. And because they are, because we are, because you are, we can also trust that God is always working to bring about God's ultimate dreams for us and for them and for our world. 
And friends, that is also the gospel. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God for God's loving, amazing, and unending grace.